I have a question for you. Sure. Were you there with me and I think uh, friend of the pod, Mike Ash, when we went to see Violently High at the Shark Tank in Tallahassee? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. And the thing, <laughs> the thing that I remember is like, it was with you. We were standing there and these two girls are talking to you, like these Florida State students. And they're both kind of drunk. And one of them asked the other, you know, does my tattoo look infected? <laughs> yeah, it's tattoo, all coming back to me. Yeah, her tattoo looks red as hell like it did not look like it was in a good way i mean i'm pretty tattooed so like i know at this point it was like swollen yeah it did not look good and her friend was just like yeah like i don't know if that looks great she was like it was a stick and poke i got done like here when i was like drunk last week or something like that and then her friend was just like yeah like you should just take fish antibiotics from walmart like those totally work. I've done it before. And that could be true. And that might yeah. be a great workaround, like how depressing the US, US healthcare system is that you can't just go like get antibiotics. But um, I just remember looking at you like, what? And then that dude stepped on stage with his gas mask bong. And proceeded to get violently high. <laughs> and then the show started. Oh, and I remember... I remember like it was, I was newly single. I was still working at the gym. I was still bouncing. I was working at the supplement store. I still had like no money, but it was like my first time walking back into like alternative life after mm. basically being like a working class jock. <laughs> and just feeling like I had never felt more like profoundly alienated at a punk show than like <laughs> at that moment. And that shit used to feel like home, you know? Yeah. I think you you get out of it and then you realize that like, man, it's like crazy to live in a house that's like utterly filthy and full of strangers 24-7 who, you know, are like trying to do heroin in your bathroom or something. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you hang out at those like punk shows and you like see stuff and you're just like, dude, I don't know if I need to be here. <laughs> like, I don't know. That's probably like the good response if you're getting to 25 and over. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I don't know <laughs> if I need to be here. So welcome back, dude. It has yeah. been a while since we've actually recorded. Uh, we've been living on the, the fat of the land, so to speak. Of, Feels good. Yeah. Of the rest. Nice to take a break. Yeah, it was nice but. to take a break. Well, especially after doing like, I don't know how people do two a week and make it good. Well, the key is that they don't usually. <laughs> but uh, we did that. And then we did that guest appearance on You Can't Win, which I guess I should link in the show notes or something like that because mm. we didn't really promo it on this show, I'm realizing. So sorry, yeah. guys. But that was fun. We were supposed to talk about Christopher Lash, but instead we just bitched about the state of the left in uh, America. Which is sort of talking about Christopher Lash. Yeah, which you're at least like, you know, you're it's at least slant rhyme, you mm-hmm. know. Um, <laughs> uh, so today we're going to take a look at some essays I slated last year for a two-piece all the way back in the fall, and we've been meaning to do it for a while. One is from The Baffler, which we'll be talking about first, which is called... 
Grin and Barrett on the rise and rise of neo-Stoicism. This is by Hetty O'Brien. This piece came out in late October last year. And then the other one is came out in April of last year, and it's by Agnes Callard. It's called The Philosophy of Anger. Uh, there are two problems with anger. It is morally corrupting, and it is completely correct. That came out in the Boston Review. and has a bunch of responses you can read that are linked to the top of it. I don't know how much we're going to get into the responses. I read pretty much all of them, but for the sake of brevity, we'll keep it to these these two. And the reason I was interested in this is because, A, through my job at Online Great Books, I got to spend some real time reading the Stoics. I read Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Anti-Fragile. He's a big Seneca fan, loves the Stoics, loves the Romans generally. And I was wondering about the rise of neo-Stoicism because I think, as Eddie O'Brien points out, it is a real phenomenon. I mean, anybody who looks for the classics on Amazon or something like that, the algorithm ends up suggesting you these like horrible like $2 Kindle books that are called like the stoic god of finance or whatever. And I was hoping somebody, you know, I thought about doing it for a while, but uh, realized I, I probably didn't have the capacity or maybe even the talents to do so would tackle it. So I was excited when I saw her piece. I hadn't read it when I slated it with the Callard piece because I thought, well, we'll just figure out how these are connected when we get there. And luckily my instincts were right. But what I did do was sign up for Ryan Holiday's Daily Stoic newsletter because I skimmed the piece, saw his name was dropped several times and thought, okay, I'm not going to go read this guy's books on Stoicism. I've listened to a couple interviews with him, but I can every once in a while read this brief email that pops up in my inbox so I'm not totally unaware of who this guy is, if he's going to be a centerpiece in this thing's argument. So Hetty O'Brien wants to dive into why this neo-Stoicism, which to her credit, she does some work to disaggregate from traditional Stoicism, is a sort of like neo-lib Silicon Valley self-help ideology. And I would say that her Conclusions about why it's resurgent aren't necessarily surprising. They have to do with sort of the rush rupture of the social contract. You know, she wants to locate that in the 70s, this exceptional moment. Listeners will know that our episode with Kyung and Sun problematizes that, but fine, fair assumption. Generally, you could say that maybe everyday life is getting more difficult and more precarious. So part of what's happening here is that there is an ideological legitimation, moral self-management system, discursive apparatus, whatever, for how to literally grin and bear it, as she titles the piece. Now, this piece starts to run into some problems. She wants to make some claims that Ryan Holiday is this out-of-touch rich dude, and I think that she does a pretty good job of that when she talks about how his black and gold memento mori signet rings will run you $245 at his store, which I thought was pretty funny and extremely corny uh, that he has those. And that, and she quotes from an interview he does with Tim Ferriss and from some of his other writings during the Occupy Wall Street to show that he's sort of anti-social unrest. 
which based on the quotes, uh, which I assume are in good faith, uh, seems the case that there's this sort of don't necessarily do things for your fellow man, but rather try to morally better yourself uh, rather than succumb to the dangerous virus of anger that's everywhere. And that this is an essentially reactionary position, which it's true. That is a reactionary position in many ways. However, that's not necessarily all of what Ryan Holiday thinks because I subscribe to the emails. One of the things that I realized was that he had a few about the universalism of Stoicism and how important, per his reading of certain Stoic writers, the recognition of pain and suffering in others is necessary for compassion and also that steadying yourself morally, having a compassionate outlook, which is not to say a um, pathetic or sentimental one, is helpful when you want to be just in the world and that stoicism is helpful for doing things in the world, right? That's not really what Hattie O'Brien sees in his work, I think, to her detriment, because she ends up saying things like, but such emotions, meaning anger, are crucial to the fomentation of movements. If you want evidence of this, you only need to look at the recent protests against police violence to see how grief and anger aren't mere, aren't mere interior states, but compelling forces that move masses to act upon the world. Okay, so there are a few problems with that that John and I both flagged. Look, I'm not going to say that there's no place for anger in the world. That seems nuts to me. It also seems like denying the basic elements of being alive. Uh, this thing functions like an apology for the utility of anger for ostensibly revolutionary politics. There is an Audrey Lord bit she brings in, which I notice because the quote basically said, uh, let's see, when focused with precision, a powerful source of energy, uh, anger can become a powerful source of energy, serving progress and change and a liberating and strengthening act of clarification, which felt a little bit like an, like Ipsy Dixit, like oh, mm -hmm. Audrey her Lord herself said it, so it's true because it doesn't really seem self-evident to me that that's true. And in fact, the past year or so have made me feel like perhaps it's untrue. Um, <laughs> yeah, that in fact, uh, anger has more <laughs> obfuscatory potential than clarifying potential in terms yeah. of action. But that's right. Like she just sort of brings that in and then kind of moves in that direction, but we never get a really sustained argument for how that could be true. Like, you know, I really don't care how you would do it. Like, I would just like other, to see some of it. Yeah, like empirical or like rational, just anything, but just some sort of reason why you would believe that because it sort of just feels like, uh, an, like an invocation of like common current convention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's a lot of that, right? Like you and I were talking about the um, invocation of structural oppression, which, you know, uh, I'm definitely not going to defy or, or the actuality of, except to say that um, I would like for her to clarify what exactly she means by that and yeah, how and anger helps clarify that. There's a lot of assumptions about how things work out in this that basically it's a slow pitch down the middle for the audience. I would like to know too, like what does that mean? What is systemic and structural um, oppression and inequality? you know, at least briefly what that means. But then also like, 
what relationship does that have with your personal moral self-cultivation, if you want to call it that? Because I think that is like necessarily going to come up when you're talking about people trying to sell stoicism. That's essentially what they're selling. And yeah. so if you're saying that they're selling you something that is in some way being evasive of certain social and political realities, then I feel like that would bear some further investigation. Like what is the relationship between those two things and why do you find it problematic? And I feel like the implication is just that things are out of your control. So it's morally wrong to ask you to do things, to respond to an unjust world, like internally, like you shouldn't have to internally self-regulate to live in a neoliberal society. That is amoral. I could be wrong. Like that could be unfair no, that seems to her. To be, but... That seems to be what's going on here. You know, one of the reasons why I enjoyed thinking about this piece is because like, I don't particularly like the Stoics and I've spent enough time with them to know that. Um, so it felt like it put me in a more neutral camp. You know, I especially don't really like the Neo-Stoics. You know, I think it's interesting that she picks Holiday and not somebody like um, Taleb who has very interesting reasons and is frankly a more powerful thinker for his appreciation of the Stoics. But yeah, it's like, okay, so is it unfair that any of us should have to self-regulate for all of these impositions that are beyond our control? And, and is that-, that a hegemonic neoliberal like ideology? Because that's sort of the second claim is that- Right, and we could say like, people are pretty loose with what neoliberalism means. Uh, it's basically like a meme now. So yeah. I'm gonna bracket that one because it seems like we would have to go on like a whole other thing to sort of like talk about what's explicitly meant like this. Yeah. Um, so we'll stick with the first, the first claim. And it's like, yeah, it's unfair. Is that exceptional for anyone living in any society at any time? Perhaps only exceptional if you're within a certain privileged dominant set maybe, but then again, uh, lots of stoicism was written by the people who ruled the Roman empire. So it seems like these hegemonic formats are also uncomfortable for the people that govern them. Now, mm. look, what is the relationship between that and justice? Well, there are definite injustices in the world. We've enumerated some of them on this very podcast. And some of them are worth getting angry about. I've gotten angry about them, but anger itself isn't inherently useful, or as we've said, even clarify. I think it's interesting that she opposes. Here's the interesting move she makes at the end. She says, self-discipline, civility, and reason. Okay, so these are three Stoic tenets. Stoic practices that may allow us to live more easily in the world as it is. But politics is as much about conflict as consensus and depends, at least in part, upon people getting angry. That's a remarkable claim to me. So yes, I will agree. Dissensus and consensus, especially if you're living in at least like a allegedly democratic society, are going to be important elements of what take place in the public institutions that are arrogated to handle that. And sometimes without those public institutions in the street or whatever. But I feel like she gives too much away here. Why is self-discipline, civility, and reason, why shouldn't those be things that you would cultivate? Okay, the civility one I've seen a lot of critiques about and that civility is often used as a way to mask or hide or police those dissenting opinions. 
That I can be a little bit more sympathetic to. I understand where it's coming from. But self-discipline and reason, I would argue, are probably two of the most important things to have if you would like to clarify what your anger is, what it's at, and the extent to which you would like to hold on to it. Yeah, it raises a couple questions for me. I think one of them is, is, well, like, what is dialectic then? Is that rational or emotional? Yeah. You know what I mean? Because is dialectic not a part of dissension mm-hmm. in some way? Or like, is there not? And that's, I mean it in like the non-Hegelian way, just like two right, the people. The more Socratic. Two people getting at something, basically, having a conversation that's sort of a back and forth, trying to clarify an idea whether that's as friends or enemies, but that was interesting because it's uh, yeah. The, the underlying idea then seems to be like political dissension is an emotional thing. It's fueled by anger and anger that doesn't need to be necessarily further interrogated. Yeah. Except to clarify its target. Like a rationality would then be besides the point because mm-hmm. rash it just, yeah, at that point, I don't want to be unfair, but it's like, that just doesn't feel right. Like on the new, it feels kind of incoherent at that point. Yeah. Well, okay. I would say this too. If we want to talk about these systems that are beyond our control or whatever, one should probably take a look at the last like year, probably more and see the way in which anger has been commodified as part of like the digital experience of everyday life. And how much that obfuscates or frustrates our ability to really recognize what's going on. In other words, it seems like anger can often be a liability that gets you manipulated into thinking you might be doing something good uh, when in fact you are not. And that perhaps one of the few safeguards you have against that is a sense of internal regulation and sharpened tools for reasoning. Yeah. It, it, you feel like people are possessed when you go on Twitter, whenever there's like some kind of social action and you just see different groups of people like screaming and kind of like gyrating or something. Yeah. And you're like, these people are like possessed by some awful spirit that they cannot control or like Shia LaBeouf, like he will not divide us. Or, or we could do the, um, you know, there are all those like, there are those uh, car can- selfie car videos of people left and right just screaming about yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, I think that's a great example where it's like, okay, w- did this really clarify anything for anybody or was it more of like an emotional release valve? And maybe sometimes it's good to have an emotional release valve, but do we want to equate that with like exactly what politics is about? Yeah, I think for all of whatever anyone might have against him, Byung-Chul Han... Uh, into the swarm yeah it's an interesting book about just this because it was written quite a little while ago long before any of this stuff was happening yeah and he talks about um you know the rage of achilles the first words in the european language or something like that <laughs> yeah, recorded. Yeah, yeah. like that yeah. you know achilles actually, rage changed actually, things yeah he I changed mean, a whole world with his I, rage but we no longer have the rage of achilles yeah. we have the shit storm we have the shit which, storm is like a cyclic affect buildup and discharge, which has been monetized by social media and led to increased engagement, but is effectively like stasis as far as actual change goes. 
I think he made the point well enough, and it's worth a read if anyone is interested in this. It's brief, hasn't. too, yeah. Yeah, very brief. I thought about that a lot reading this because I think if you're trying to philosophize anger right now, you really cannot afford to not directly address that fact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, neither of the pieces, nor in the responses to the Callard piece, does anybody really engage with that because it's frankly it makes you feel like nothing might be possible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think people aren't wrong because I've definitely felt this myself, you know, that sometimes anger has been clarifying, but usually not unto itself. I've had to like sit back and try to like think of it. And sometimes that's taken me literally years to piece together. And at some point, and we'll get to this when we get to the calorie piece, I've had to let go of that anger so that I could better understand the situation that was pissing me off in the first place, because it was frustrating in that way. Now, I, what I don't want to make a case for is what I would call a type of antiseptic rationalism that denies the importance of the moral sentiments, as Adam Smith would say. You know, the Callard piece and friend of the pod, Matt, really makes me realize probably within the next year or two, I need to crack that big boy open and read it. But I'm worried about it as this sort of political ethic, this sort of emotivism that we use to judge whether or not somebody has serious political claims. I don't think that that's an appropriate criterion for, you know, uh, (laughs) what's worthwhile or what's a good understanding of what's happening or who actually has something at stake. So this week, we're recording this on January 9th. However you feel about what happened at the Capitol building, I think everybody should consider like the utility, not just of your own anger, but the anger of others with whom you might disagree. Mm-hmm. And then try to see things through that standard. Yeah. I mean, right. you know, there are a lot of people who are under the impression that, you know, whether, you know, these people were mistaken about it. I'm going to withhold judgment because I'm also not trying to headline chase. I'm really just trying to bring this up as like a case to contemplate the utility, political utility of anger as is implied in Hetty O'Brien's piece. Mm -hmm. And also that it's opposed to discipline, which I think is a huge mistake. I think I would just like to do my own, what what did you say it was called? Ipse Dixit? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Of of Alain Badiou and say that uh, all I could think was his quote, those who have nothing have only their discipline, which is worth contemplating as Maxim. It implies that you can't afford if you really have skin in the game to deal with the dubious luxuries that anger puts on your plate. Now, some of those angers might be justified. I find a lot to be angry about in this world, but you can't leave yourself open to letting it manipulate you or to you yourself being manipulated. And if we're going to talk about the merits of a sort of internal self-regulation, I think it would be that, that there is actually a political case not to make for stoicism. Perhaps there is, but that's not the case I'm making. I would say that there are things, and to O'Brien's credit, she does quote from a friend who is a fan of Ryan Holiday's that says he does find this sort of neo-stoic thing empowering because it makes him focus on what he can do and to drop the rest. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of listeners that say, well, yes, that is often a bourgeois pretension 
that keeps you from engaging in larger things, fine, agree to an extent. But at some point, you have to walk out your front door and engage with the world around you. And you literally only have so much power, even if you are in a mass movement. This is your life. It's like, your life. Yeah. This is it. It's right here. And maybe I don't, I can speak to it somewhat from the lens of a person who often deferred their own life into some form of like really elongated daydreaming about when things would be better. And then I would be more able to come into my own, like once society changed. And that until that happened, I was kind of excused from being responsible for much because it wasn't a good society and it's not my fault. And so like, how can you blame me? And that like, and some people might want to talk about whether or not I was right, but I feel like that became unimportant to me. And in fact, being right may have been, you know, one of the worst things for me. Like if I had felt right, maybe I never would have given that up. Yeah. But at a certain point, your life becomes unlivable on those terms and you, in my experience, just have to live on a different basis, you know? And yeah. I think that's kind of what we're talking about. Right. At some point I realized that it didn't really matter how angry I got. I would fantasize about with like a Mad Max road warrior band rolling up on some wealthy mansion in Tallahassee, killing everyone inside and taking all of their shit while I was washing dishes <laughs> at my shitty sub-minimum wage job. I think I was right to be angry about the conditions I was working in. They weren't good. I was struggling a lot. It was very, very painful. But at some point I had to admit that like the anger and resentment I was generating didn't fucking change anything about that scenario. Yeah. You know, and while I could never fully cauterize my emotions around it being upset, I certainly didn't have to indulge in unhelpful instincts that seemed to offer me no productive distance from my inner life and the life I saw around me, which there is at least a minimal difference between. I feel like that's why we chart kind of an Aristotelian course through this in terms of we wouldn't like to deny anger its place, mm -hmm. but I think that if passions go unregulated you're not in control. Like that's basically what's going on. Like you live under the illusion that you're doing what you want to do, but you are in fact enslaved to appetites, you know, that you are feeding and making more wild mm -hmm. every mm -hmm. passing moment. And that situation can become, you know, like quite tragic eventually. Yeah. And also insidious. I mean, it's difficult to keep a lid on that stuff mm -hmm. and to cultivate a relationship with yourself where you can, you know, deal with the scenario, you know, like, and, and I, I want to say that because I don't want it to be like condescending to anybody who's incredibly politically angry right now. Like, Oh, I have in fact, transcended out of and let me show you the way i would rather say that these are the terms with which i have met more productive struggle with my passions which yeah. is a daily project because every morning i have to wake up and engage the world anew yeah it's not to say that we don't get angry or something or like that 
I've been I fucking angry, angry on record <laughs> yeah. like, on this show. We get angry pretty much probably in much the same way that we ever did. It's just, yeah. I think, handled a little bit differently. Yeah, the extent to which it rules me is, you know, far, far less. And, you know, I had another thing that I was going to say about, like, anger and its liabilities, but I don't... Um, you know, I don't really remember what it is. So <laughs> <laughs> I think we can trans I'm free to transition to the, um, the Callard piece, which John, I think that's a good idea. Have. Yeah. That, it'll bring up a lot of what we just introduced, I think in a pretty yeah, good way. So she kind of the like opening salvo here is basically somebody hurts you. You are hurt. What then? Like you're angry now, but how long is it rational for you to be angry? How even, long even is anger justified? Right. Even after they've made restitution. Yeah. Which so is important. How long can you stay angry? Can you stay angry after they've done some kind of restitution? And are there different kinds of anger? It will come up a little bit later. Like, is there purified anger and bad anger? Like, you know, poisonous anger. How do these things differentiate themselves? And, you know, and then she kind of ends the intro with like, I think we're asking all the wrong questions and I'm going to get into why that is after talking about the history of thinking about anger. Um, and so one of the things she gets into is there's, um, there's sort of like a, a pro anger point of view, which she says um, this pro anger position has its roots in Aristotle's view that the well-trained passions are what the or would allow the eye of the soul to perceive moral value and finds its fullest expression in the British moral sentimentalists of the 17th and 18th centuries. The Earl of Shaftesbury, Francis Hutcheson, David Hume, and Adam Smith all held that our feelings are precisely what sensitize us to moral considerations, which does not feel like the fullest or most perfect expression of Aristotelian ethics to me. I wanted to like briefly kind of note that i mean it would be feel right because like, does she lump aristotle in with them or well she says that they're somehow the most perfect expression of the view that the well-trained passions allow the eye of the soul to perceive moral value which i don't think aristotle said that the well-trained passions have a perceptive quality at all like obviously rational reason perceives the mean and things where the mean is allowable or it perceives that there is no mean in something and it must be avoided. Like mm -hmm. that's the reason does that. And you regulate your passions by knowing what's wrong and right. The well-regulated passion doesn't like feel good or bad. And then you just know what to do based on how you feel. It just seemed profoundly incorrect to me on a deep level. And it then allows her to say that, there is an entire huge sweep of moral thinking that is emotivist in nature, which I think perhaps you could lay the charge at the feet of the early liberal thinkers. I won't do that because I haven't read them well enough, but certainly not with Aristotle. It turns it into something that it's not. And it's interesting that. Yeah. I she think sort of puts Aristotle on the side of the sentimentalists, right? Because he's not totally denying anger the way the Stoics does to do. Right. Yeah. But it, it doesn't really like, I don't think she understands what's actually going on in his ethics, um, which is, it's fine. But in both pieces, I feel like reason is a given about the, 
the shortest, you know, <laughs> like reason's not well liked in either place or it's not found to be that important. Yeah. And for me, that became one of the most important things about reading this piece, which I guess we can come back to a little bit later. But, you know, we're going to go through various things and I will just sort of summarize it to say that, like, basically some people will say that anger can be useful to you because like, you know, anger, you can use it to be courageous or like do things or to go at justice to try and achieve it. And some people will say that anger is poisonous because it corrupts your inner life and you and it hurts you and other people and it's a destructive force. And some people will try to say that you can have a purified anger, which has only the good qualities of anger and none of the bad. And that that's something that's possible. And she's going to say basically like that's, feels like a little too good to be true the middle way path there of like a purified anger it doesn't seem right to her Mm. which is i think a fair suspicion to have yeah i i would agree with her there that i don't necessarily think that that is uh at least the way that she expressed it being reason didn't seem entirely convincing to me um but then we move on into talking about the early questions we brought up that somebody hurts you they've taken something from you that you can never get back and any form of restitution they do will be sort of symbolic in some way. Like it won't be a true return of what you lost because that's impossible. And so I think for her that then signifies that restitution is merely a way of attempting to cut off an endless war of retaliation after retaliation for an initial slight and that laying within that there is the reality that you are forever hurt by somebody and that that's just that. And so you then have, you know, you will always have a reason to be angry from the moment you're hurt until the day that you die, you will be justifiably angry at that person. And there's really no reason for you to let go of that. Yeah. It's the case for grudges. She calls it. Yeah, basically. And then, we move into the case for revenge, the argument for revenge, which is that somebody has treated you as if your bad is their good. So now if you treat them as if their bad is your good, you will be holding them morally responsible in a real way by giving them what they gave. It's sort of like an eye for an eye, a form of justice. And it's, you know, perhaps in this scenario, the only way in which one could, um, make somebody morally accountable. You'll never get back what you lost, but you can take from them, I guess. You can subject them to what you were subjected to, that same interpersonal relationship. And then she even invokes Polamarchus, which I'm sure was uh you enjoyed. <laughs> yeah, which I thought was I thought was um interesting. I mean I think I'm not gonna adjudicate whether she's wrong or right to do that. I'm I was just happy to see someone talking about Plato at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, she says, um, you know, that that view of grudges is perfectly rational, justified, and intelligible. Polo Marcus and Plato's Republic express the hostile logic of anger. Justice gives benefits to friends and harms to enemies. And um, you know, so we get through all of that. And I guess, so one of the interesting things, it may feel like an aside, but one of the most interesting things about Stoicism to me is that they have an idea of logos, which is really not like anything else at the time. Um, Well, it is like other things. 
it's remarkably similar to the Neo-Confucian idea of the Li, which uh, in both cases, it is the rational principle which gives form to matter. Um, it's the rational governing. I have it pulled up. I'll do a better job and not say what I have to say about it. But so on Wikipedia, which actually gives a nice little summary, it's the act of reason pervading and animating the universe. Um, it was conceived as material and usually identified with God or nature. The Stoics also referred to the seminal logos or the logos spermaticos, the law of generation in the universe, which was the principle of the active reason working in inanimate matter. Humans too each possess a portion of the divine logos. So to me, um, I feel like that would be important to think about if you wanted to talk about Stoicism, especially if you wanted to revive it or use it as an operating system, so to speak, for the world. Because the only reason... So Stoic ethics are rational because the universe is rational. Mm -hmm. Like the universe is formed by the principle of reason on some level. And the Stoic idea of God is like rational. Like reason is the fundamental principle underlying all things. And so you use reason to figure out how you're going to act in this world that's formed by reason. And that's why it all makes sense at the end of the day, you know, there are different views on it, but I remember reading in Marcus Aurelius, there's some sort of optimism for like your life being led in a good way and then ending like that's good. And then maybe after this world, you'll be in some good place too. And like, cause there are a lot of extant ideas of afterlife at that time from like, you know, the stuff in Plato's Republic, which you also see in like the Aeneid and, you know, so who knows how like widespread that is, but there's a basic idea that like your life has a purpose, you're living it in a purposeful way and then you're dying and then going to something else, which is really profoundly different from emotivism, really profoundly different from an idea that your passions will really tell you anything at all. That's true. I think it's sort of like the extreme opposite position of that, that like, you have to utterly regulate your passions because they'll never tell you what's true. Like only mm -hmm. reason can apprehend that. And there's sort of a like, so, you know, I don't think that the neo-Stoics are really reviving Stoic metaphysics. I think no. that they're probably being left by the wayside. And what you're getting is like a toolbox of sort of things that you can do to kind of be more okay with the ways in which life is difficult mm -hmm. by kind of conditioning yourself. And then on the other hand, though, we have, so where she ends up going with this, um, the Callard piece, is basically she wants to go and start talking about three, what she's going to call anthropological thinkers, um, Frederick Nietzsche, Michel Foucault, and René Girard. And she says that they have all argued that the darkest sides of anger, vengeance, bloodlust, and limitless violence are baked into the very idea of morality. You know, she says, all three of these thinkers remain hugely influential, despite having had the empirical details of their argumentation called into question by scholars from a variety of fields. I want to suggest that one reason for their enduring and even cult-like appeal is that they make a compelling and deep philosophical point that floats free of the particular historical anthropological terms in which it is couched. What do these views have in common after all? Nietzsche says we have built our whole morality out of resentful bloodlust. Girard says that violence and the opposition to violence are one. Foucault says that punishment is crime. 
The common denominator is the observation that human morality has a tendency to turn in on itself. Being a good person means at times being willing to do bad things, which is a lot. <laughs> and my first question was for three people who are ostensibly making empirical and anthropological arguments, if those then turn out to not be great, why did they then float free from the falsity of their evidence mm. that felt sort of like carefully alighted um, yeah. and to just like, it's so philosophically compelling, but again, like, what does that mean? Does there a like strong rational component to them, you know, where like empirically they may have been false, but we could find better empirical evidence for them because underneath it all, like they had a kernel of like strong truth or something but that also really doesn't feel like what's going on. It feels like they feel emotionally true. They feel emotionally satisfying to read, which I think anyone who's read Nietzsche can attest to that. Uh, I mean, at yeah, certain it's, points. it's, it's uh, I mean, he's electric. Yeah. <laughs> like you read, uh, you know, the thing about it reads over. Um, oh yeah. yeah I was going to say over the gate of hell, it reads I too was made from eternal love and Dante, but what it really should have said over the gate of heaven is like I too was made from eternal hate. hate. Provided that you could put an archway over a lie. <laughs> yeah, an archway. Is, is, like the, a, is the nice coup de gras there. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's brutal, but like, is it true? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or did he just like, was yeah. it just a good own? And then we get into like the difference between rhetoric mm -hmm. uh, or like logic or philosophy or wisdom, like that the two are not necessarily synonymous. Mm -hmm. definitely and that's where i start to become suspicious of the fact that probably three people who are extremely rhetorically successful are able to smuggle in some ideas that maybe necessarily don't hold up and it kind of it really depends i think on what you what you believe in to a certain extent that's kind of where i ended up with this we can say maybe that's what we can talk about is that like i pointed out logos because being a Stoic makes a lot of sense if you believe in Stoic metaphysics because everything kind of branches out from that in one way or another. Like everything becomes a reasonable response to certain things just being true. And I think likewise, subscribing to the, the three anthropological guys theory of human society makes a lot of sense if you're like a last man nihilist. Right, because where Callard ends up is she's basically going to say that like anger is inherently morally corrupting. Yeah. And that you really don't get either a pure morality, whatever that might be, or a moral anger entirely, in that there are trade offs that are just built into the game, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that she does that I actually admired is that she says, you know, this means that being a victim doesn't necessarily make you innocent if your own anger at being a victim is itself corrupting. And I think you and I at least agreed that, you know, from one of our favorite John Dolan pieces where he goes into the St. Paddy's Day riot in New York, I think in the, gotta be in the late 19th, early 20th century. One of the things he points out that I think is true is that oppression does not ennoble you. Now, you don't want to totally 
say that it also doesn't necessarily make you a completely wretched and despicable mendacious person either but that Callard is at least taking interestingly though she brings up Nietzsche in a semi-laudatory way I would say she is trying to work her way out of the problem of slave morality on secular terms Mm -hmm. because I think she intuits rightfully so it's difficulties and it's built-in contradictions that turn into a type of emotivism mm-hmm. that is itself unclarifying. So that's why I think she, she also wants to say that staying angry isn't unreasonable because she wants to bring a type of logos to anger. So that way you can say that anger isn't just emotivism. Now, whether or not that succeeds, I think is part of what we're talking about here. You know, we both read Liz Brunig's response, which we were fans of because she brought up the case of forgiveness and the horrible pain that true forgiveness brings you, but also the freedom with which it does. That seemed to be an honest reckoning with the difficulties of life and that people inflict things on you that are unjust and that are unfair, but to hold on to them and say that you have a right to hold on to them forever is to foreclose on what are their other opportunities of self-transcendence. It was good to read Liz Brunig right after finishing this piece because her conclusion, which I can just read, you know, Nietzsche, Foucault, and Girard contributed to a strand of cultural criticism often invoked in support of attitudes of cynicism, misanthropy, and pessimism about the human condition. They are seen as radicals. In my view, however, all three are to be faulted for their timidity. <laughs> like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Timid Nietzsche. Um, there's, it is striking the degree to which each writer held himself at a safe anthropological distance from the dark side of morality he so accurately described, uh, which is fair. If they had stepped inside their own theories, they would have immediately drawn the simple devastating conclusion that it is impossible for humans you and me and the three of them included, to respond rightly to being treated wrongly. We can't be good in a bad world. Um, that's Callard's conclusion. Yeah, that's right. that's how she ends the piece. And I think it was, uh, it was nice to go right into Liz Brunig right after that, because talking about forgiveness, I think, in that context was... Um, it's kind of a nice, like, refreshing, cool glass of water or something, because it brought me... You know, it reminded me of being in a dark place in my life where that's how I felt that the world was. But mm-hmm. I I think now, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at earlier, was that there is, you start to think now that this isn't being argued in entirely like rational terms. At least I kind of feel like a lot of this stuff is true because it feels true and it feels true because we are living our lives in a certain way that will make it feel true. And it's not the only possibility. Like you could believe other things to be true. This isn't like the work of these three people. And then the extrapolations made here aren't of such apodictic certain, you know, like power that it just must be true. It is in fact, you know, just to go into that sphere, like it's a worldview of a particular kind of person. And you don't have to be that particular kind of person, which perhaps is worthy of maybe its own treatment somewhere else. 
But yeah, because there are other things to get into. Like we've often talked about Nietzsche's idea of slave morality and its uh, perspicacity. So it seems like at some level we can understand that perhaps there are some like quote unquote floating elements of Nietzsche's insights that move beyond the empirical way, whether or not Callard meets muster in terms of demonstrating that is not there. Also, it's a short piece. I would also say that like in terms of the different type of person who believes X, Y, or Z, you'd have to lay out that case pretty thoroughly so that you're not just doing the postmodern buffet of who you want to be, which I don't think you're doing, but I think we can- No, I just don't want to say that basically truth is real and like (laughs) i don't believe that this is it yeah and i have a lot of reasons for doing that that i can't lay out in this episode that's fair maybe we'll just go mask off yeah yeah (laughs) and just say that right so because i think that's important to like anchor this and that whatever their insights we disagree and perhaps we should actually do like we did for Christopher Lash, a series on After Virtue or something like that. So yeah. that we can sort this year, so that we can sort of muse on our adjacencies to things like Aristotle um, and stuff like that. Yeah, you know. I think we we plotted our way through that, and I gave my final impression. But like, I would like to talk about, you know, I think it was a good point, the non dignifying aspect of of anger, like the corruptibility of each person, and the fact that no one's immune to being corrupted. Yeah. Because I think that it's one of like, maybe this is the most salient point for us right now in terms of like talking about social commentary, because I feel like this is probably a widely held like idea. I don't know that, but like, I I would imagine if you talk to somebody on the street, like they would be very uncomfortable with the idea that a victim could be made worse by having been hurt. Um, like, right, or often somebody being hurt is evidence of their innocence, which is something that which I, is, which is I think a commonly held assumption I brought up in sort of my end of year wrap up piece, the oligarchy of sob stories. Which is um, mainly what I, w- I was thinking about was like that's why I think you know it's in our media, it's in our culture. There's the idea that you can't be good until you're a victim, mm-hmm. or you can't be right until you're a victim, because to be a victim is to be correct. And, and to be innocent, most importantly, which is the thing Callard wants to problematize. I would say to her credit. No, absolutely. I think it was a point well made, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it made me think of, uh, and Mencius, actually, he brings up that, he says here, for anyone who has a copy of Mencius, ha ha, it's at <laughs> 720. <laughs> <laughs> Only a noble is capable of having a constant heart while lacking a constant livelihood. As for the people, if they lack a constant livelihood it follows that they will lack a constant heart. No one who lacks a constant heart will avoid dissipation and evil. When they thereupon sink into crime, to go and punish the people is to trap them. When there are benevolent persons in positions of authority, how is it possible for them to trap the people? And it's there's more uh, examples of it than just that one, but it's kind of an underlying idea that morality is not separate from politics or like your social condition, we could say. Because he's identifying the fact that there are a few people who can remain virtuous in any circumstance, but that they're by and large sort of like an extreme minority. And that the vast majority of people, if you make their conditions bad enough, they will end up in dissipation and evil because of pretty basic facts of life. Like I don't have anything to eat, so it's suddenly quite a lot harder for me to think about stealing in moral terms. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's as basic as that. And the other thing is, it's like that doesn't necessarily need to be a permanent condition. Mm -hmm. And it also 
doesn't necessarily mean that someone's morality is totally conditional, which is something people really love to argue. People who've never been hungry love to argue that, which is also irresponsible. But what we should say is that in recognizing these facts, we might recognize what we owe each other in terms of society and that there is in fact contracts we enter into when we cohere a society and we might inspect it for creating morally repugnant situations for people to live in. And that this is my own democratic apologia that part of what democracy offers as a public institution is that through arrogating unto the people, the sovereignty and dignity of governing themselves that there is at least a broad and open navigation of what the best might be. That's not to say that politics is a truth process, but what we're talking about is a type of civic dignity and culture that could best let people realize themselves and their society and give people an equal stake. This is why when we were talking about Lash, common standards are so necessary for democracy, right? And that you have to hold on to the common standards when people miss the mark, because either they're in a situation where they are so beyond the law, either because of uh, the excesses of wealth and the frankly corrupting nature of that, I would say, or because society has put them in a place where they are so immiserated that it is impossible to meet the mark, which would be a failure of society. You know, it would beg us to ask different questions about the truths, so-called truths under which we operate. And like, look, I mean, when I analyze society, I try to be a materialist because I find that helpful for understanding both culpability and the way things work. But I will, frankly, never shed this moral sense of how things are to be because I believe in truth. Yeah, I think it was something that's interesting to me thinking about these things is that the ancients, Chinese or Greek or whoever, um, at least what I know about, there's like a fluidity to interpersonal states. Like you're a person and you have capabilities or you have potentialities, we'll say. That's present in like Mencius and it's present in Aristotle. Um, And you develop those potentialities and that's both a matter of what you do, but also your personal circumstances. And these things are kind of changing all the time. And this is sort of how you will grow or not grow. It's kind of like a, to me, I would call it more like a, it's sort of an, an interesting naturalism, like a moral naturalism, which recognizes a transcendent truth, but also is just sort of observing things as they happen and then drawing conclusions based on these kind of empirical observations. Like, you know, oh, people seem to behave this way in this kind of situation most of the time. But the, you know what I mean? Like, it's not creating absolute states or extremely like hard and fast rules where this is always true, where this is always true. It's kind of recognizing that there is an extremely, like there's a huge multiplicity of states and possibilities in the world and that things 
kind of move between them quite often. I just liked your point that it's not an absolute condition to have been hurt or be a victim. No, and exactly. It's not something that you're stuck with and you're not like forever morally corrupted by having hated someone for hurting you or anything like that. I think there is a great deal more fluidity and a sort of like becoming to being alive where you're able to transcend things and move through them. Right. And this should make us ask some questions about the value of punitive justice and to the extent that there is one and in what Mm -hmm. scenario, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the horrors of the U S prison system is that you're basically locked out of society forever. Once you've done that. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes you may not have had a good range of options to begin with. You know, I mean, that's just un- unconscionable. Like I, I won't stand for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so I think that that's why when we say like common standards doesn't mean that everybody needs to be punitively dealt with for deviating. It's that we should probably have a forthright and thoughtful engagement with the both moral and material aspects of justice in our society. Yeah, you can have the idea of common standards, but then absolutely no notion of what's really going on in the world and then apply it in a completely like insane way that is a truth <laughs> yeah. evil. Yeah, yeah, totally. Which I and think I we think, see a lot of, you know, that's yeah. part of what's dark about the so-called meritocracy in America. Yeah, I mean, and that's honestly like that's what Mintress is arguing to the ruler he's trying to kind of make more wise is that like if you punish the people after immiserating the people, then you've harmed the people like two times and trapped them between two impossible situations. And like, that's not how could hold. A be- yeah, like how could a benevolent ruler do that? And it's part of a larger argument towards why you would want to be a benevolent ruler. But Right. And one of them is frankly just the stability of the society is that, mm-hmm. you know, people aren't going to put up with that at some point, whether within your rule or the rule of your children. Yeah, like, like it's a certain they will point eventually you break. Be banging at the gates of your palace. Yeah, know? it doesn't hold. And I think it's, you know, it, we've kind of ended up in a lot of different places, but I feel like there is a lot of good, especially in uh, some of Callard's considerations for us to think about. Mm-hmm. Because I think that when we're trying to talk about like, how do we make sense of society in our recent and maybe not so recent past? And like what's going on today, the decisions made on terms of like a federal or a state or a personal level in terms of how I act or how people govern. It's important to think about, um, I think, this exact stuff because it there is a lot of ramifications for what you decide is going to be true about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, we'll obviously say that we think we're right in terms of what we just laid out. Like, we think this right. is the most reasonable position to take on this. Right, exactly. You know, um, and who knows, maybe as we do this, we'll find, I would hope that we would find ways in which we were wrong or need to fine tune things or reconsider if we're doing. Pretty honest. much always is the case. Yeah, pretty much always is the case. So, which is why I think I would be interested to do the McIntyre series at some point, because he also brings up problems in Aristotle himself and tries to recast it. And maybe that's not possible, but I'm interested to take an honest look at the attempt as a way to frankly, bring up problems for our own uh, biases and the arguments for how we see the world that we've constructed thus far. So listen, get ready for some hardcore moral philosophy. (laughs) All right. Yeah, totally. That's part (laughs) of what we do here. Um, So we hope that this was interesting. I think that this fits into our theme of why nothing feels possible because 
frankly, the O'Brien piece really catered to a certain type of emotivism that is everywhere and I think injurious to authentic political endeavor. Um, and understanding, honestly. Yeah, and understanding. Um, which isn't to say that her piece is entirely without merit because I don't want to say, I think that would be a very unfair mm-hmm. thing to say about, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to be like that. Um, and while we didn't agree with the Callard, I think that it at least gave you more of the dignity of response on your own terms, mm-hmm. which um, I very much admired. And I thought that she had some honest and clear concerns. So no, totally respect to that article and yeah, it's argumentation. Yeah, definitely. So thank you for listening. Um, I believe next week we'll be back with finishing up our Emerson, Poe, and 19th century literary nationalism nice. uh, moment. I don't think that that'll be all we read from those guys. There's certainly other stuff to consider. Emerson's Man, the Reformer, mm-hmm. uh, will likely come back to us when we read Frederick Douglass and stuff later on you know, to get a sense of antebellum America yeah, um, and stuff like that. We have definitely not mined all the depths, but uh, it'll conclude that little triptych for now. So thank you guys for listening. We will see you next week and stay safe out there. Yeah. Stay safe. shit, the deer shit, the green monster, the bling, and the bling bling. And I want you to roll it all in one joint. No one's ever been brave enough to try that. One man is rolling. I'll smoke it with you, bro. We'll go to the moon event together. I don't give a fuck. My shit!